Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Pierre Bohana, who started as a prop maker for The Phantom Menace, worked on every Harry Potter movie, and then returned to the saga as supervising costume effects modeler for all of the recent Disney Star Wars movies. Fascinating and incredibly talented, Pierre has some wonderful tales about things like rebuilding C-3PO, redesigning stormtroopers, and lessons learned along the way of nearly 30 years of world building. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 114, Pierre Bohana. People get tired of me saying this. I like to start from the beginning, the early inspirations that you might have had, the reasons you kind of wanted to even get into this line of work, but what were those first movies or things that you noticed and kind of got your mind and imagination going? Yeah, it's funny. Obviously, it's a question I get answered quite a lot, and and it's always a compliment to get asked anyway. You know, but it's something weirdly as you get a little older, you kind of think about it in a slightly different way, and, and um, because generationally wise, film the films are different in certain aspects to when they were when I was when I was a kid. You know, I was very lucky. I grew up in a in a period of of great filmmaking. You know, the, the sort of Spiel, well, pre Spielberg, I suppose, and then into Spielberg time. You know, the Star Wars and things like that. And but really good Bond films. You know, the Roger Moore stuff and and lots of really interesting stuff. You know, stuff that's been made in the seventies that you can see on telly. In storytelling aspects of filmmaking, I think it's probably the strongest period there ever was. You know, to this pure storytelling. So it's the, you know it's the interesting times really. My dad was, I suppose, was was a big influence really on my professional career. He initially was a he worked in motor racing in the 60s so he he was a designer a car designer and specialized in in body work and, and that aspect of it and sort of early aerodynamics and in as far as motor racing was concerned and things like that so a very interesting time as far as that was concerned but he also he was a slightly maverick character um during that time he worked at a company called one of the companies worked was called ford penske's and they they did all the running gear for bang bang and so he met he met two or three guys during that period and then also a good friend of his that worked a little bit in the film industry and that's, that scenario sort of came together a few years later and he he got asked to to make a lot of stuff for spy love me so i i was probably would have been seven seven eight years old when he was doing that and i, I remember him sneaking me on to he always which is something he always did get us into pinewood studios you know mm-hmm. whether under a coat and a car or whatever <laughs> and anyway it's the, and they were you know it was a different time anyway to then and we used to bimble around my mum still has i'm sure she still has in her loft teeth from man-eating plants from journey to the center of the earth that right. when pinewood just they kept everything it was old set you know it was there's loads of old props and sets and pieces and things like that stuff from Cleopatra and things that just sort of, sort of sitting in the in the hedges you know sort of gently rotting away it was an amazing magical place really but I remember walking onto the tanker set uh, on the 007 stage of Pinewood which which it was built for that set I mean if you've seen the film and the walls of the of the tanker are actually the walls of the stage you know you, don't, right. you see that and that was I just remember just having run of it it was just me and the old man was had built the big globe that was in the middle of it and, those, and so he was fiddling with that and I just Ran around the ran the set for a couple of hours. It uh-huh. was just and it was amazing. It was just like yeah. it's this. You walk through a door and then suddenly you're in this completely different world. And that obviously that stays with me a, me a lot. And then it, you know, so there was lots of things like that. He worked in the industry for well, he, he flipped between the industry the rest of his life back and forth. But he ended up working on Dune on David Lynch's Dune and went out to Mexico. My dad, uh, my grandfather worked in Colombia for many years, so my father was very familiar with South America and the Mexico. So he spent twelve months out in Mexico. On, 
on Dune. And at the same time, because it's De Laurentiis film, he, he, uh, they were doing the second Conan. And my, right. my, weirdly, my stepbrother, who's three years younger, befriended the main lead baddie actor. It's a guy called Will Chamberlain, which I, don't uh-huh. know, I think is probably a lot more famous. In the <laughs> yes, he is. It's just like life's so weird. It really is. And Will, Will was a, he was lovely. I mean, obviously, he is. You know, he's he's one of those people where obviously there's there's an aspect to him that everyone knows, but there's a lot of him as a human being that never, never you never would know. Um, and that part of him was actually was an amazing. He was a lovely man, really, really lovely man. He used to go to the studio afterwards. He was close to the school, and my dad used to take him home. And so he used to. There was sort of several other kids there, and he was only like I don't know, eight, nine years old. Right. I used to play football, um, as in football, you know, soccer, football, yeah. um, and we were just joined in and just started playing football because he loved sport and things like that and of course no one they, they didn't really know him they were just <laughs> this, this seven foot two guy normally with sheepskins on the back of him you know and things like that and he used to kick a ball around with them when he's and and uh anyway so he <laughs> my dad walked around the corner get loot and found him playing football with him and within a week he was he became a sort of family friend and and the old man basically went out in the evening and they talked about things. And Will said, "Oh God, you know, I've got he's you know he lived at the top of the Bel Air. He literally lived at the top of Bel Air. Um, he had all silly cars and you know, the, the Bentleys and Lambos and all that kind of thing." He said, "I don't fit in anyone. He just my legs are too long. I cannot fit in." And, and the old man joined him. Well, I'll just make you a car then. What do you want? I just you know, <laughs> just typical of him. Uh, and Will said, "Yeah, let's do it." And, uh, that's the 15 years of my dad's life was was spent on and off doing this car for Will, which actually wow. they did finish, kind of finish it. it, it it's a real pity. It was amazing at the beginning. It became a bit of a pain for all of them all mm-hmm. around. But it's in a museum and there's a basketball museum it's got a whole area about Wilt that is in, I think, Detroit, maybe. Something like that, anyway. Something like that. So, weirdly, I went to boarding school in the UK, when I was, yeah, which is very good. And obviously, I knew my dad very well, but I hadn't spent a lot of time with him. And so, when I finished school, I thought, well, I'm going to take a year out. He was living at that point. He moved down to the south coast of England to build Wilt's car. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he said, well, what, you know, I was talking about things I wanted to do and things like that. And he goes, well, look, just come down here and just spend the summer. Come and work for me. We'll just work on the car and, and you know, just get just. And I was, I was really up for it because it was a bit of fun, a bit of lightness. And it was a bit of time spent with the old man. And, and just, you know, South Coast of England, I was a teenager. He was just like, you know, it was just you know, any, you know, really usual stuff he would do then. <laughs> um, so I went down there and I started working for him with, you know, three or four other guys there. We were doing the body work for the car. Mm-hmm. And... I just had this relevant, you know, this revelationary experience of of making something really, and it, it sounds very odd. And I, you know, we've obviously done I've done stuff like that before, but you know, not like that. But I did a lot of making. We always did, you know, it's much more analog time then. I, I felt that I'd learned more in like six months than I had done in the last previous five years of my life. So you know, what was supposed to be a break and going to whatever I wanted to do then, just turned a corner and never went back. And. I went off and did apprenticeships. I went and worked on um, for boat builders and et cetera, et cetera. I was down there for about three years and then moved up to London. I started working with a company doing massive 3D display stuff for advertising audiences. And, and then uh, one of my dad's friends said, oh, could you come and give us a hand over the weekend? Just phone me up weekend so that we've got this, I'm working on this architectural model and this need, we just got to get it ready for the end. We just pretty blind panic. Could you give us a hand? So I went and did that and the lady who ran the company on the Monday phoned me, phoned me up and offered me a, 
a job and it was a company that did special effects work for mostly TV uh, for commercials and a bit of TV and things like that tabletop effects and models and, and of course at that in the sort of late 80s early 90s it was a big you know TV right. commercials were booming um, so it was a good company and I, I went and did double the money four pounds instead of two pounds an hour I was uh-huh. rich beyond the dreams of avarice <laughs> so, so really came into the industry that way and I really cut my teeth with that company yeah and then after, I don't know, a couple of years of working with them, I, you go freelance and you start working with other people. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of TV stuff, a company called Hattrick Productions, doing a lot of comedy stuff. And then uh, the Spitting Image, I worked at there, right. did a couple of series with them, which was just amazing. Then carried on doing TV commercials and then start doing little bits on films and then more films, more films. And then suddenly I was I was running departments. I got, I got asked to run a prop making department for the UK-based part of, of Titanic. So right. originally Titanic was going to be played in Southampton uh, in the UK. Then it moved out for Mexico. A lot of the stuff obviously was uh, made and built here and then we shipped it out there. Incredible. So, you know, all the bridge, all the bridge, flying bridge stuff, all the bridge telegraphs and yeah. wheelhouse and stuff like that. And then we did like 400 exterior light fittings and interior fittings and radiators and, and all the kind of paraphernalia that we get in the ship. Then you just go from job to job and you say, if you look to my, if you look to my RMDB, yeah. Um, you can just see how old and haggard and uh, <laughs> long of tooth I now am. Don't know yeah. how I got here. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, Titanic, <laughs> very small movie, right? That small. Not a lot. I mean, maybe actually... listeners haven't really seen it or anything. No, but, no, I mean... exactly. The ending's unbelievable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Titanic, I think, is a great example of then you really moving into the big budget things like you're talking about. And I think that time in London, right, the Pinewood, Leavesden, Shepperton, all those studios really cranking out movies like Phantom Menace even or World Is Not Enough, mm. things that you were able to really kind of sink your teeth into. I would love to dive a little bit into those early years for you and even especially Phantom Menace, obviously, like what uh, were you learning? What kind of were you building? And what kind of was growing as this industry, I feel like was really reaching a weird apex that has really now kind of come back into full fruition recently with kind of this move back towards practical. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, the UK is a funny place for filmmaking industry, for the filmmaking anyway, because it's always had, I'd say, a manufacturer of films. You know, even something like Moby Dick, which you do, you know, as an example, was made at Elstree Studios, the same studio they, they did the first couple of Star Wars films, right. which is North London. There's a there's a lot of films that I mean Superman, the original Christopher Reeve Superman films. I remember seeing him as a, <laughs> one of those one of those times when I was like eight nine years old in Pinewood talking about that, and and they was filming the first Superman in Pinewood, and myself and my three step well, two step sisters and step brothers were walking through like the main dragon Pinewood. <laughs> And this limo pulled up, stopped, and the door burst open, and Chris Reeve oh. jumped out, full of full costume, oh full high kids. I'm Superman, and there's four <laughs> of us who stood there, like our eyes like like that. And now, hello, Mr. Superman. Very nice to meet you. And he went away, and we all turned to each other. And of course, we were from the UK. We didn't know who Superman was. <laughs> <laughs> Just this guy in a tight lycra suit with his red pants on the outside and the cape, but yeah, <laughs> so that was funny. But That's yeah, great. see, they were they were they were made here too. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, so so the UK's had a had a um, an interesting influence. You know, that, I mean, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the American, which is the, I think a very part of it is that you know the, the, the American film industry is a global. I'd say is a global industry, especially I mean, especially now. I mean, the, you know, the industry is colossal. Absolutely right. colossal now, even compared to you know, compared to those times, compared to the time my dad was working, compared to even to the times when I started it. 
you know, when I started started in it, it was going through this sort of transition, I suppose, of kind of the, coming to the end of sort of, or the start of the end of analog kind of filmmaking and, mm. the, and the really the, this kind of rise of the, of the visual effect, um, which obviously has had a colossal influence, I think, filmmaking in the sense of practical. Is there's the obvious, there's the obvious scenario of, of the technical advances of it all. But also it means that every every other department has had to change its game and improve its game and come to meet the new demands. Mm-hmm. And I think it's had a it's had a big influence. And I think you know the, well Phantom Menace was a, a good example of that. Yeah. I think weirdly Phantom Menace was it was a really interesting film to work on from, from my perspective. We started as a prop maker and obviously we you know I went into a room of guys of about 20, 25 of us eventually. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously, when when you get the phone call for the gig, is is you know we were so excited, right? Because it's it's a very it, you know the original films was, was as if you're a prop maker, you know, that were just oh my god, it's just it's so exciting to be able to to be involved with it. And so everybody involved in that part of the band and and everything else really kind of approached it in a manner of trying to do it like it kind of was done before in lots of ways certainly to bring that that aspect to it but obviously this time it was very much George's baby mm-hmm. and ILM massive influence on that much bigger than before in the sense of how it went about uh, and also technical advantages even then compared to the original films of moving you know, it gone days of stop frame animation models and things like that and they were just getting you know, obviously all full digital and George really wanted to push that really right. really hard which is you know all good all audible yeah. you know to, to, to the attitude even if the execution you know is a debatable point of it but we weren't really aware of it at that point so so for us it was just like well we'll just dive in it and just do do as good as we can and do it and try and do it in the same way i mean we had we had an absolute ball i mean i let i've met a lot of guys that i still work with now we met on that film so it's a, you know in, in the internally and personally it's a, a very important film merely for the for the sort of the certain members of the band of brothers that that, right. that we are now that um that, you know we came together then and it was it was great you know that we they they'd gone out to aircraft breakers and and literally we had a massive warehouse full of just full of stuff so as well as formal makes to do we'd get things like oh no they could you make us, you know, the tight tidy would come, the prop master come and say, I need 10 pairs of binoculars by the end of the day. Everybody stop what they're doing and everybody make a pair of binoculars. Uh-huh. And that was it. That was it. And then, of course, the, you know, you get typical blokes, you get very competitive, everyone makes right. all these insane, ridiculous different things. And that was, but that's, that's very much the, the influence of the, of the previous one anyway you know a lot right. of the props on the original films were generally made by prop men who were moving furniture one day and said oh god we just need to make this lightsaber thing just get, you know get, just get the box of <laughs> stick that on that there go done yeah. uh, you know it's that kind of that kind of thing but it's all visual and there were some really very clever visual creators i mean you know the, the stuff gets so overmade nowadays really does everyone's you know art director sitting there drawing stuff and it's just like and that's fine but 30 years ago, it was just like one bloke make something quickly. And, right. uh, you know, you've got half an hour and and uh, and the glue's still hanging off and the, you know, the yeah. chrome tape is just, it's the way it was. And I think Phantom Menace was very much a transition in that. Yeah, we had a lot of, we had a lot of fun. And we were still allowed to be, to have a contribution and be a creative contribution to it. No, that's so interesting. It's, I mean, because we've talked to so many of the original crew, like we talked to Roger Christian who built the lightsaber, right? Who pulled, mm. who pulled it off of the camera, right? The camera flash was the, the graphic, right? Yeah. He's like, this is it. Like, and you put like two buttons on it and you called it a day. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. 
and that I loved, I mean, Phantom Menace is still like such a formative movie for me. And it's really has held up in a way just, I think, cause it's so tactile, right? People love to talk about the computer generated effects and all that stuff, but like the amount of like just physicalized Star Warsness mm-hmm. of it, right? Whether it's the pod racers or even like what you're talking about, just the random gadgets everyone just kind of had as part of who they were really added to that. And I think as we move into further your career, like building the worlds, I think is, is a way to really describe everything that you've interacted with and then moving, especially into Harry Potter and working on eight Harry Potter movies and Fantastic Beasts. I'd be interested to see how that's evolved for you and, and how you've kind of approached making things feel natural to these kind of fantastical worlds over and over again. Yeah, you are. You th- you, I mean, you know, what we're doing is just contributing to telling the story, I think, right. and helping support the storytellers. And, you know, there's a there's a storyteller as a writer and a, and a producer and a director. And then there's a visual storyteller, which is generally the production designer, you know, costume designer, but, you know, and, and also the director's part of that, that sort of loop as well. And I've been very lucky with, with some of the guys that I've, I've been able to work for to so that they create these these opportunities to really kind of run with it and I think Phantom Menace was 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 you know George's visual you know impression which I think is you know you can talk about the directing and, and the storytelling and all that kind of thing but I think also people forget his his visual influence as well mm-hmm. which I think is probably a lot stronger in a weird way than a lot of other things you know that was a much looser brief he was right. you know really you could but you can interpret that a little bit more straightforwardly i think when you come to when you come to potters then that's a different that was a different game altogether mm-hmm. and you know it's stuart craig the production designer you know if anybody's dumbledore in the world of film it's probably him mm-hmm. he's the unbelievable talent um you know his visual his visualization his strength and his idea about how things should be is is so thoroughly thought out Right. so impressive and that's why i think one that world is is so good and so convincing and the story is obviously amazing and it's so clever that you that you have a parallel world you know right. that joe's say cleverest things about potter is that it's a total world of fantasy but it's it runs in parallel with the real world and it's a world that the people that are reading it that, that it's written for you know mm-hmm. that sort of teenage period could really put themselves in it and wish to be in it and want to be in it and feel that in a weird way it was possible, which it never was. But it, you know what I mean? It's not not fancy out there. It's fancy right next door in the room next door. That was also clever about it. And so Stuart was able to visualise that and really take take that kind of real world and warp it and do it in a in a way that was very based, you know, in, in a very English way, in a very British way. Right. In the sense of the visual, in the sense of just that's where the world was. That's where you know the story, certainly the Potters was was based. Albeit the fact that it could be anywhere, and you know, it, it's a, it was a world thing. For so when I got involved, was getting involved with it, and you pick that up, it really was what was given to me was the opportunity to really render are parts of it as strongly as possible so it was it was about doing things as thoroughly as as you can you know ones by example ones were made with precious woods and hardwoods and you know not necessarily what scripturally so you know cherry wood cherry wood's actually pretty boring (laughs) you find amazing mexican rosewoods and things like that to to look you know just all that kind of stuff but we went to that nth degree just you know that we we'd had we had But we tried to use proper metal casting when we could. Probably, you know, real materials, real and and all the investment, rather than just knocking something out and painting it to try and match. And then also looking forward into new technologies. So as well as the visual effects side of it, we you know started getting eventually started getting into digital modelling. But right. also our um, a lot of pre a lot of prototype processing. So a lot of our moulding and casting was done 
in a completely different way that I've been done before and trying to look into industry to, to really see what, what we could bring to bear as far as processes are concerned that wouldn't normally be used. And that's influenced us even up to right today and a lot of the costume stuff and the things right. that we've done have really come from that investment into into how we go about it so it's a it's a blooming thing and that again but the, that's about people as well so the people that were learning the people we're doing the portrait films with you know mm-hmm. the, my crew and, the, and everyone that, that influenced that has have you know been part of that development yeah. that development of skill and knowledge and understanding and on that goes now I, I really do love looking at the harry potter films which is i've happened what almost two decades worth of of movies and seeing mm. how how movies have changed throughout Right. Mm. obviously in like drastic ways and whenever I get to talk to someone that was able to work on them over and over again it's interesting in one way because the directors have been changing out for a while relatively consistently and then really with that strong Stuart Craig I'm, I'm so glad you brought him up because all the way back to Gandhi and English Patient and things that he was really like elephant man right and then he's able to really kind of create this direction for Potter that feels consistent even as directors are coming in and out right so you have this visual tactile kind of language that is laced yeah throughout the movies well i think the thing with stuart is that he's such a he's reliable so as a director you don't have to come in the field you're going to be in he's not intimidating he's never intimidating he's the, honestly he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet right. and, and you know could say that you can hear that said a lot but he honestly is because he's very confident in what he does so he doesn't have to force the issue he's he's very clever at getting <laughs> his way all the time he's amazing at right. it and he does it with, <laughs> and, and you'd love him when he's doing it <laughs> just like you know he's he doesn't there's no there's no uh, intimidating factor you just like you know you can either people falling behind him because they they come very quickly to to utterly respect what his decisions are and he you know because he's generally right you know you could it's and so it's you know it, that can be intimidating in certain ways but it's not with him it's not it's just like it just you, you just become part of something that's that's so so good yeah I was going just even through your website and just like the small things that you can immediately like look and visually, you know, like, oh, that's Harry Potter. And now it's in five different theme parks. You, you know, you buy it at the bookstore and it's like, here it is. This is what it feels like to read mm. the books and now to mm. participate in it. And throughout your career, you've had to kind of superhero work is very interesting to me of how to reestablish something that's just on a two-dimensional page, right? And making it feel believable, like Dark Knight, for instance, having to rebuild bat suits, I think is very interesting. But even moving to Edge of Tomorrow, or I guess all you need is kill, right? What was that like trying to translate something that might be fantastical and make it believable in kind of these slightly futuristic settings? Yeah, I mean, Edge of Tomorrow is it's the, one of the cornerstone film experiences, really, because because I was, it, you know, these suits. Right were such a cornerstone part of the of the story really and they really wanted they really wanted to make sure that they were right and right. of course as usual with something like that no one knows what's right they all know what's wrong but they don't know what you know and so but the least they made they gave me time to really get a principle working while we developed what the what the look was an enormous amount of effort and energy went into what the look was so while that while that was happening we were we were concentrating on basically trying to figure out the principle of them and get them to work in a filmic sense you know obviously there was never the time to, to get something like that all the money uh, to make anything work properly i mean there was one there was an american system at the time that they were developing that, that they built two and each one was 10 million dollars each and they had a 12 inch i'm not sorry they had like a, a two inch thick cable that came out the back <laughs> of it driving it with a massive generator right. out the back you know it's just like this things will never work but you know be filmically really what 
I always consider them as puppets. I think they were they were actually these they were different forms of puppets. So so you know initial stages we were just looking at the framework and and how you build them a frame that around the body all the pivot points are actually essentially inside a body all that kind of thing all the engineering. Um, and then we could just dive into the creative part of it and just come with it with confidence to be able to to try and try and influence it and try and make it work and try and make it filming. But you know take that principle and mix in. Tom oh Cruise. my god! Yeah, it's just like oh my god! <laughs> it's just like anybody, you know, everybody yeah. comes away from doing a Tom Cruise film with many stories, yeah. and also to be honest, a lot of pride. He doesn't make crap films anymore. You know, he's he's it's it's yeah. always an experience. He's very you know all the obvious stuff and lots of un you know unobvious stuff as well, which actually is a lot. You know, he's a he's his passion for filmmaking is incredible. It's very brutal, lovely guy. And then um, Doug Lyman, right. who's you know an incredibly talented director, and yeah, and then just this just the circus and just the yeah. the roller coaster of, of the film that was. You know, my that was the biggest spend, the biggest crew I'd ever had. I got up to 168 people one week was my crew size, which right. is enormous. I mean, that's just that's like right. you know, like a wing of Ford yeah. or something like that. It's just like it was mad. You know, I had a proper manufacturing. We properly had a, a manufacturing base, really building this bloody. But amazing, amazing. I, I look back on it now, and I, I, I honestly not quite sure yeah. how we collectively did it. I, I don't know how we did it. We were like, we were eight weeks out, and we had to make eighty of those suits, and each suit had, I think it was about three hundred cast components in each one, and probably another couple of hundred semi-manufacturer subcontracted elements to bolt together um and you know we'd finished designing and we're turning around oh, oh my god we're shooting this in eight weeks and, and we just you know we were just like christ and then on it went on and went on and i love and it then out you the other side but amazing and the story is great as well you know i, yeah, I love the story the original book is fantastic absolutely fantastic um and uh so it's yeah that was again you walk away yeah just with great pride, to be honest, just you know, it's great pride for all of it. I'm very proud of, the, of what the guy, you know, what my team, what the guys did. Yeah, me. it is. I mean, that that production is so like there's so many stories from it, but I think the end result even is still so seminal when I think about the past decade, let's say, of sci-fi movies, and it's that and Mad Max really is kind of like establishing a new world and and in such an mm. effective way. And I love what you're describing because it really feels like a, a great lead into then working on these Star Wars movies, the newer ones. And I'd, I'd love to kind of explore first how you got involved. Obviously, when they were looking for qualified people in the UK to work on this, I'm sure you were very high up on the list. But how did you initially get connected with that crew and then working with Kaplan and, and making sure that bringing Star Wars to life happened? Yeah, well, to, you know, through essentially through costume supervisors, really, and, and um the uh, when we were on kill i mean it was a bit odd because kill was a bit i was kind of i had my own department and we were doing prop making right. because yeah, we didn't yeah, have yeah. to do you know just doing that a little bit as well and for the costume side formally probably as the costume supervisor called uh, dan grace and obviously we were working closely together anyway um because there's such crossover and also the, the costume designer wanted to have an influence on the design of the suit as well as the production designer and then everybody you right. know everybody had a bloody opinion about it <clears throat> so us, you know, we were just trying to corral it all and just make sure that we weren't talking about changing major changes a week before they expected a studio, which often is a case when you have so many, so many chiefs. So anyway, but he, he, and uh, and I worked with him before, and then there's, uh, but he was 
was very had was good friends with another costume supervisor guy called David Crossman, who I'd worked alongside of. We'd done a couple of Potters, and at the end, mm-hmm. you know, I knew him, you know, to the sort of gentle chats, and I've never actually worked for him. We knew each other very well through through just being in the right. same same productions. Uh, and anyway, he phoned me up and God, I can't look at my energy whenever when it was just within, within <laughs> six months before production started on on the on Force Awakens. I can't remember what the hell I was doing now. I have a look at my diary. And uh, I said, do you want to come and have a meeting, talk about possibly doing Star Wars? And it was just like, yeah, of course, yeah, I'm going. Let's um, and introduce it to Michael and had an interview with them and went through stuff and talked ideas and, and principles and how they want to go about it and how I say it felt I would, if I was doing it, how I would I would make art, you know, do the costume effects side of, of stuff. And yeah, <laughs> next week he said, "Just start now." It's just like right. you know, you know, start in a couple of weeks and <laughs> easy as that. <laughs> I mean, you know, it does. They always start easy. Doesn't mean they're going to be easy. It's the, yeah, you know, it's the, it, you start off with with lots of hope and and optimism and and joy and then and then they either carry on like that or they just become oh my christ what have we done or we've got, you know say 12 <laughs> months later you pop out the other side with either yeah. still a career or maybe not you don't know but anyway yeah it's, it's, and of course with star wars and it just it just carried on and it? it just drove on for another right. for five years and it was a different you know that was a difference with different experience from phantom menace it completely obviously that's the prop making doing phantom menace and i was right. on the bench i wasn't running and then I was, you know, just one of the senior models there, and, and but with, you know, by the time we got to to Force Awakens, then we had the team and and drove in, and off we went. But you know, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, a lot of the I, by that point, you know, we're talking about, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff we'd learnt on the Potters actually had influence on how we would, how we made a lot of the things on you know, costumes on that. The Stormtroopers, for example, I didn't want to paint anything. I would, everything uh-huh. had to be cast with the color in it and the finish in it because it's just. <laughs> it just saves you so much time and so much effort and you can control the materials and the mm-hmm. rubberizations of them and all that kind of thing so we you know they were proper products um, and that's the principle applied to all of the all of them all the way through even the classic ones our ones were done a completely different way to the in the manufacturing sense to, to yeah. what the original ones were done yeah it's a staggering amount of work like even just taking it movie by movie, like how many mm. trooper costumes probably were fabricated for Force Awakens alone, and then you think about then the individual characters, mm. some that were just like in the background that I'm sure you know, like there's one droid that I'm sure took weeks, right? But yeah, I'd love yeah. to talk about the legacy sort of things. I'm glad you brought up stormtroopers, but even like redesigning, let's say even C3PO, right, and mm. trying to figure out what that looks like in. 2013 right and how that is different and how that's the same right a, a character we've known for 40 years what challenges were you experiencing and how yeah. did you kind of overcome them as filming progressed yeah i think with i mean with with c3po it, it was a matter of obviously visually you can't really change him i mean jj asked for him to have a red arm which right. which sent daniel over the uh, sorry, <laughs> it just completely went over the edge of it and constantly asking why is my arm red why is my arm red because it's great because it might be you know it's something that you know and it's just like but no that was that was fun i mean it, it's you know for for us it was um it was about that, that's that's the, i mean god how more iconic do you get in, in c3po you can't change certain aspects of them so for us it was really building something that that um anthony in his dotage then and he you know what's in mid 60s when, when he started late 60s when he started but you know could actually be in because they used to, the original one which was a which was a really i have to say it was a really impressive costume then very impressive but that was 
they took 45 minutes to screw him into that. And then he basically used to have to stay in it the whole day. Um, they used to lean him up against the wall, you know, when they weren't filming, just then stick a straw in his mouth. Or the, you know, I mean, how he did it, I've no idea. And the, 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 the helmet, if you have even the slutless bit of claustrophobia, it's going to send you over the edge. I mean, it's, it's, it's so close to him. Right. Um, but he's, yeah. he, you know, so, so for us it was just right. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna break this down. We're gonna we're gonna do it in semi rigid elements. We're gonna build. Obviously, just build it. So we're trying to get the finish up to up to exactly the way it was, and trying to get it comfortable, and, and also being able to get him in and out of it really quickly. So you know, to the, uh, one of my guys, Dave Merriweather, was really put to task on on digitally rebuilding him up and um, to that. And for, you know, it's, it's so yeah, we put an enormous amount of work in there. So that he he took him took us about, you know. The, basically he could be dressed in it in under three minutes and they could get him out of it in about a minute and a half so he used to he used to wow. be semi-clad they used to dress him in between the undress him in between shots um so that he was mm-hmm. you know he was really uh, much easier to trying to get trying to get him as comfortable as possible but i have to say you know he's he's as invested in it as, as everyone else was i mean he had a want to be involved in an opinion and and just be involved in just coming to the workshops and work stuff up and and which was fantastic and he really got involved with it. you know had a very close relationship with all the guys the guys that were working on it and a couple of them went on to carry on dress you know with dressing him and things so and you know it's amazing but i have to say the first time i met him anthony that he came in for his first kind of test fitting in the costume department and as usual you know lots of people around and it's always it's always like half of you're right do it once and then and then come back in an hour's right. time and come and do it again so we can actually do something rather than everyone talking get very excited but um uh anthony had brought he has an original uh, helmet and <laughs> so he brought one in and wanted to talk about it etc and there was a point where he was just in his he had like a he has like a wick under suit and he was in the mm-hmm. in the uh, changing room and he just he just put it on he put it on and he was standing in the mirror and he clipped it on to me turned around and he just tipped his head and it was just sent the shock i was looking at him in the mirror <laughs> and oh my god there he is there is and yeah there's no one else that could be C-3PO from Andy. I mean, bless him, you know, right. hopefully in a long, long, long time from now. But bless him, when he goes, to someone to crack uh, that performance, because it is a performance, really, that's that right. C-3PO is actually more than anything else. It's just amazing, and his, just his, his manner and the way he moves. And it was how he got the suit to work in the, in the meantime, but also he's a performer. He's a proper performer. Um, right. And... Uh, yeah, magic. That is, you know, pure film magic. Talking about this legacy, moving from Force Awakens to really Rogue One and being able to, like, you're like you're directly working with things from 1977 mm. at that point, right? It's no longer the continuation. It's you're mm. in the world again. Were there any additional challenges that that brought, or how were you able to kind <clears> of <throat> remain creative? Of course, there were new designs. There was Sagarera, and there were the Death Troopers, and there was like really cool things to build within. But a 1970s aesthetic. Yeah, and well, David Crossman put it very well, and Glenn, you know, who, who would design the costume design that and, mm-hmm. and solo. Uh, and they said you've got to treat it like a period film, really. So you know, you've got to, you've got to look at sort of the historical part of of those previous films, interpret it, and then build the world out from them. And I think they did a brilliant job. Out here, and Dave and his military, especially his military uh, stuff. You know, he did Valkyrie and. Lot. So he did 1917. You know, he's done a lot of lot of proper historicals, and that's really his. That's why he's so good at Star Wars because he he understands uniforms properly and well. 
uh, yeah, so that was I. Re- I enjoyed those. I really enjoyed those because they were they were. You, you, I don't know. You felt you felt more confident in what what things look right and everything. Michael Kaplan uh, is a brilliant costume designer. He's but he's almost yes. I don't know, in the best sense. He's like a fashion designer. He was putting a, a an, an opinion on so Force Awakens all the. You know, designed and new stormtroopers up. It's a new, it's a period, it's a different period, and that's why it worked right. for that. Whereas Solo and the Rogue were very much of a time that we were already experiencing. Even looking, especially then, Solo, I think is an interesting kind of juxtaposition of a bunch of your talents, where like something like L337, which a lot of people would think is just all computer generated, was a lot of onset build, mm-hmm. you know, of, of making that a believable creation. And what was that kind of process? Yeah, I mean that was that was interesting because they had done, but in Rogue we had the you, you tell oh K two I said it was K two yes, so K two was completely digitally generated. Right. Great, they had um, I forget the guy's Alan name Tudyk. who played him. Yeah, and um, he obviously was he it was a pure digital capture right. and he was on stills and things like that. But with L three, they the visual effects supervisor uh, came and chatted and he goes, well look, there, there is a slight fiscal requirement. You know, it was easier for them to really be able to enhance the visual capture by, by with real elements. And L3 wanted to do that. And obviously, they cast Phoebe, mm-hmm. well, who was, again, a fantastic bit of casting, to really characterise and try and get a, a sort of, they wanted a very sassy, very opinionated, strong, strong kind of female character mm-hmm. to, to come into this, into this droid. Which he brought, so so really we t- we took you know, and it was a, it did take a long time to design. It went through lots of different ideas about what it what it would be before it eventually came came to her her, her final final aspect. And obviously she sit her Phoebe's body proper sits slightly within and slightly outside of 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 L3's real form. Um, but that was. That was all fine. They feel they could dealt with that. There was enough of the, you know, what you the, the elements that we made, which which were probably I don't know, fifty percent of the of it was physical, and the fifty percent was digital. And I think it was it blended perfectly. It was brilliant because you've to, you know, there's enough there's enough reality in there just to to soften soften the visual effects. We all know how it can be. You know, if it's pure, 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 it can. I mean, it's so good now that maybe ten years ago you could really tell. You know, it's, it's much more ambiguous right. now. Um, but the amount of work it takes for them to get it good, get it right, is is enormous, absolutely enormous. Right. So they, they get given so much more by getting it into camera. And I've had that experience recently quite a lot. It's it's amazing. It's it's much easier to have an object made, something like that, something where there's a lot of performance, a lot of movement in it. It's much easier for them to really enhance it rather than not have anything at all and have to make it all up. Yeah. No, it it really is. I love Solo and I love, I mean, just how, again, mm-hmm. I keep saying tacked on. I, I feel like I've said it a hundred times, but just like having that feel so real, I think added so much to that whole emotional arc. And Yeah, and it's a real performance piece. You yeah. know, and I think they want, I mean, Finn and Chris, the original directors, Rob took over was, you know, they, they, they were, I think they were sort of, they, they wanted, they were employed really to get, a, a, it was about performance, getting people to bounce off each right. other and, and that, that way. And I think that, that still, is in that that movie definitely yeah and it really is then started getting applied even more because then you think about everything around it with with the screens and with trying to immerse the cast as much as possible really carrying through with star wars now with the tv shows and i mean going going especially to last jedi and rise of skywalker i'd be interested just to hear 
as you've done you, now you're a Star Wars expert, quote unquote, at that point, like, and really redefining the things that you had created. So like, I'm thinking of Kylo's mask being glued back together. I'm thinking of Captain mm. Phasma being a, a, a kind of a reskin of the designs that you're having to fabricate just for stormtroopers. Of course, the new characters that are coming in, what, what was your process with your team as you kind of moved through the trilogy, especially and 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 making sure that it still was stylistically similar, but grew with the characters, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think we were into a rhythm, I have to say, certainly with the three, with a trilogy of, of just, I felt it opened up really, especially with the Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. We would, we just, you know, we came at it with more and more confidence, really. I think that's that's how I felt about it. It wasn't as intimidating. We knew that we knew the world now. We knew what people wanted. You know, all the red troopers and things like that. I mean, we made over a hundred of oh, those yeah. eventually, and and that was fine. That was you know that was good. I think the system worked well. The flying jet ones, you know, a lot of stunt work. A lot of we did completely rubber like foam rubberized suits as well as rubberized stunt ones for like you know loads and loads of stuff. It just deal with the scale of it, I suppose, uh-huh. more than anything else. And I think that's that's inevitable finishing of the art right. as, far, as far as i'm concerned in the, you know in the in that sort of that five-year period for me you know i personally speaking i was i glad it stopped you know it, 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 in the best sense right. in the sense of just like right okay we need to stop we need to break it has happened with potter really the best thing with potter in a certain aspect was to be able to stop to be able to and have a break before you come back to it it does take its pound of flesh and you've you've got to, to to be able to do anything like that again you have to walk away and spend a bit of time away from it to be able to come back and, and bring anything back to it, anything that's fresh or needed or new or whatever you have to cycle yourself through definitely come back with fresh ideas i mean again it's been incredible to see that journey and even just looking again at your website and remembering just how beautifully um it all kind of has come together and, and created the story and then i guess i mean i'm not going to ask you about future projects because they're all the i mean the biggest projects that everyone's very excited about but as you've moved through your career i guess kind of as a final question like what have you seen the industry change and how has that changed your mindset if anything and and as you move into these new constantly big projects what are you taking with you project to project yeah, I think I think that's it. I think the scale of everything is just so immense. But the industry itself, I think, is enormous at the moment. Absolutely enormous. And even this, you know, just the pre and post COVID periods, it's you know, coming back after COVID and we've hit the ground so hard and and, and it's so it's so busy. And it's so busy in the UK, it's so busy in the States, it's so busy in Europe, it's so busy in Australia, it's the internet everywhere is just jammed canada you know it's just jammed it's just jammed we could not make any more movies if we possibly tried at the moment you know that's amazing that that is it's fantastic it's fantastic i i'm i'm a little intimidated by it i suppose i think for for me it's just like it's getting to the point where it's just like on a personal level it's just like right one second i I need to because things are big doesn't mean necessarily me to say that they're better i think it's 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 just that there's a certain amount of refocusing and trying to get it back down to maybe doing a little less Mm -hmm. so that you can do it a little better you know i think that's i can't you can't do everything you can't do and at the, and you know at the moment I think everything is very stretched. So right. big projects are tougher because you just it's difficult finding the crew. It's difficult finding materials. Nightmare at the moment to get 
get hold of fabricated materials because the, the, you know the whole world is is still reeling from the you know what's happened over the last 12 months so you know the, the sort of outside world influencing our industry doesn't happen often but it is at the moment yeah so i mean it's a great time to get into industry if you, you honestly you just have to sit on a bus stop outside of Legion or Pyman at the moment and you'll have a job within half an hour <laughs> People were just, you know, so desperate for for good for people and good skilled people. Right. So, which is great, you know. I think it's it needs to hit a new plane, a new level. The quality is still there, so that so the, the the demand doesn't water down yeah. the good stuff. Um, and that's the thing that's actually what I really like to do is is do something like kill a little bit of surprising, yeah. something that will that will be um, that will come come from behind and be something new right. you know i think it's 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 been wonderful to do the potters it's wonderful to do star wars and and all of those sort of things we all love them desperately and they're not going to go away but you know there is a question about okay what's the, what's, what's next what's the next yeah. what's what's the next who's going to be the next jk who's going to, you know that kind of thing i think we've there's a period now where it's ripe for for whatever that is and that's what's exciting about it yeah every time that there's new worlds being created and being showcased because there is that familiarity, like you're saying. Like I love watching a Batman movie because that's something familiar to me, and seeing that evolution over the years has been great. But then, like you're saying, whenever you can be just shocked by something, whenever yeah. you can be excited yeah. by something again, um, it's really, really nice. No, I th- I'm, I'm with you. I think that's, I'm, I'm excited to have that experience again. That you know, that original sitting in, seeing the original Star Wars, seeing the original yeah. pot or whatever, that kind of thing. I'm just like, whoa, it's, it's yeah, we're <laughs> we're. We're due, due that. And I think it's that's a slight problem with there's so much being made. It's very difficult right. to pick that out from from, from the mass of oh, other yeah. stuff, you know, because everyone's trying. Yeah, but. yeah, there's, yeah there's, there's too much stuff happening. Yeah. I can't yeah, like, keep exactly. up with. And for me, it's a, it's a, it's a, but they're very similar, which is the same before Star Wars. There was lots of, I mean, not the same as that, but there was lots of films that were very similar at the time. And that came, just came out of the, um, left the field and, and and change things and that's that's what we want i think it's actually really is quite right for something to do that yeah mm. well, i'm excited and i'm excited to see whatever you do next because again everything you've touched has been incredible so pierre i appreciate your time and i appreciate you talking you're only as you're only as good as your last cock up so far so good so far looking at everything I'm like yep everything check 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 well no, i don't know yet you haven't seen the next two things that that's yet. true i have not i have not uh and i wasn't gonna ask you about them but i'm excited for both so um no, no, good. no wonderful that's great yeah very lucky all right well pierre thank you again for taking the time this has been just such an honor and um i appreciate it brenda it's, it's, it's always a pleasure and, and an honor for me to be able to talk about all the nonsense I've done in the last 30 years of my life and, 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 and also, you know, for the opportunities and the people I work with and the crew I'm with, really. So, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you for, for allowing me to bang on. <laughs> it was a pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure. so much again to Pierre for coming on the show and telling these fascinating stories. Check out some incredible behind-the-scenes photos that I had never seen before at his website, pierrebohana.com. We actually will be taking a short break starting in July. I'm getting married this weekend, so I'm about to be a bit preoccupied for the next couple weeks. But actually, if right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show, it means a lot and really helps us out. Think of it as your wedding gift to me. Thanks in advance. 
so until next time, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the force be with you.